This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Rob Tombrella, pastor at Grace Church. Grab a seat, and if you wouldn't mind taking out your Bible, we are going to look at a text in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians in the New Testament, go past the Gospels, go past Acts, Romans, you'll get the first, and then you'll get the second. Corinthians will be in chapter 5. And just have one question that I want you to be thinking about as I preach, and we will apply this question at the end of today's message. What is the mission of your life? What is the mission of your life? What do you live for? What do you die for? What do you strategize for? What do you dream about? What do you put your energy towards? What do you put prayer towards? What do you think about the most? What do you get anxious about the most? What is the mission of your life? If you have trouble locating that, as I ask that question, another way I could ask that question is, whose love do you most value? Whose love do you most value? What direction of love so motivates you that it causes you to be on mission for that thing? Here are some places that people find love most valuable in. The love that comes from job and career. It sends people on mission. It sends people on a direction. The love that comes from family puts people on mission for family. And it can become an all-consuming focus. The love that comes from our kids, our children, or our future children, our future kids can send us on mission. The love that comes from a husband, the love that comes from a wife, or the love that comes from a potential husband, or the love that could come from a potential wife puts people on mission. The love that is in wealth, that is found in wealth and pursued in wealth, or the love that comes from achievements, trophies, money, acknowledgement, acclaim, success. The love that comes from those things often put people on mission. It's because they find their primary identity in this. It can even be a sports team that you love so much, and the love that comes from that identity Puts you on mission. So what's the mission of your life? Whose love or what what love do you value the most? And I want to look today at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I want us to believe today, if we've never believed it before, that there is a love in Christ that has given us a new identity And a new mission, whether we would find our identity in this, this morning, or whether we would say it but not believe it, or whether we've never believed it before, that in Christ, a transforming love gives us a new identity and a new mission, a new one, brand new. Before I read the text, I want us to get kind of caught up on who the Apostle Paul is. Because I could say Paul, I could say 2 Corinthians, and that means something to a lot of people in here, but maybe not to everybody because you're new to the Bible. And I've said Paul, and well, who's Paul, and, and who cares? Well, Paul was inspired by God, and he's pinning Scripture. He was a unique apostle who met the Lord, 
But before he met the Lord, Paul was a committed Jew. Committed Jew. Committed to his religion. The reputation that he had in Acts was he was extremely zealous for the traditions of his father. In other words, he was ultra-religious. He loved his religion, committed to it. He said of himself in Philippians, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a top gun, the best of the best. I couldn't be better in my commitment to Judaism. Therefore, I hated disciples of Jesus Christ because I hated the name of Jesus Christ because I saw him as an obstruction to God's will and God's plan. So he hated Christians in such a way that Jesus can communicate to Ananias and say, go to Paul, who I've set apart for my name and for my mission. And when Ananias hears that, he responds to God, much evil has he done to your saints at Jerusalem. This zealous, committed Jew. And then something amazing happened to Saul of Tarsus. An amazing transforming love grabbed hold of Paul and changed him. Literally knocked him off his horse and put him in a whole new direction and with a whole new mission for his life. And he summarizes it in Philippians when he says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And what does he do when he finds Jesus? When he finds the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus and he's transformed by this love, he immediately goes on mission. It's not step three in the discipleship plan with Paul. He immediately starts to persuade people. He immediately starts to proclaim that he is the risen Christ. He is the Messiah to the point that he's beaten with rods. He's stoned. He's shipwrecked. He's in danger from rivers and robbers and his own people and Gentiles. And he's in danger in the city and he's in danger in the wilderness. And he's in danger at sea and from false brothers and in toil and in hardship. And he says, I've experienced many sleepless nights. I've experienced hunger. I've gone thirsty. I'm often without food and cold and exposure. Now, why does Paul live his life like that? He lives his life like that because he has a new mission and he has a new identity because of the transforming love of Christ so that he lives that all that he might be all things to all people that by all means I might save some. That's what he wants to do. He wants to save as many people as he can possibly save through the gospel, through the message of reconciliation, which is what we'll see today. To the glory of God, he's found Jesus, or more appropriately, Jesus has found Paul and put his life in Paul. So let's read chapter 5, 11 through the end of the chapter and pray and we'll get started. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, the church he founded, a church he stayed with for two years. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. 
But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Father, the mystery of this text is astounding. And I just stand humbled by the truths of what this means. And I thank you, God, for the powerful, life-giving, transforming word that this is. I thank you that we're born again by the word of God. That your word is your very voice, the very voice that creates, the very voice that sustains is the very voice of God that we are hearing and that we see with our eyes. And it looks like black on white paper, but it's your voice. It's the creative power of God for us. And we ask God that you would do all that you want by way of creation and by way of sustaining by this great word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just two questions related to the transforming love of Christ. Number one, what does it do with our new identity? How does the love of Christ give us a new identity? What's that all about? What does that mean? And how does the love of Christ give us a new mission? How does our identity in Christ give us a mission from Christ? So let's take the first question. What is our new identity? A very familiar passage we just read. Let's look at it again in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. And what he means by regarding people according to the flesh is he means the same thing here that he said in verse 12, the outward appearance. Apparently, they were false teachers that were boasting an outward appearance and not what's in the heart. And Paul says, we don't regard anybody according to outward appearance anymore. Because what matters is what God does on the inside. He says, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh or outward appearance. 
We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Note that word, new, and note the other word, creation. New creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He wants to emphasize a new creation that has happened with anybody who is the qualification in Christ. And he means those who put their faith in Christ and yielded to his lordship and, his, and who he is. So our new identity is a new creation. But what does that mean? What is the new creation that Paul's talking about in chapter 5? What is this? New creation, how are we supposed to think about it? Well, in order to understand what he says here, we have to go back one chapter in chapter 4 and look where he's already referenced the new creation that happens when we put our faith in Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 5 through 12. You don't have to turn there. We're going to have it up here. Don't miss the forest for the trees. He says in chapter 4, verse 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Notice verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Anybody know where he's referencing that? Paul's referencing something in Genesis. Genesis 1, 3, where he creates light, and he creates light out of nothing. It didn't exist before. There was nothing there. And God speaks something that doesn't exist into existence. A creation, a new creation. That's what Paul's talking about here. He creates something. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness as creator has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the gospel, the good news is the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ. Seeing the glory and having a sense of of the beauty and the majesty of the glory of God in Jesus Christ and seeing his glory, something has to happen for us to see that. And Paul says what has to happen for us to see that is that God has to do something. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has himself shown in our hearts. God himself has to enter into our hearts. Not only an invasion into planet earth and what he did in Christ when Christ came to sinful and rebellious and a dead people. And he was born in a woman, born of the Holy Spirit, but born in a woman and born in a manger and lived a perfect life and died on the cross and rose again. This invasion of grace and this invasion of love has happened for us. But God says in order for us to even comprehend that, another invasion has to happen in here. Not just on the outside of us, not just good news that's happened out here or beside us or with us, but something has to happen in here. And he says in verse 6, God himself has to shine in our hearts. God has to enter in and shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of this great God, Jesus Christ. God himself comes in. Verse 7 says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. So he tempers the expectation. That's what's already happened. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels to show that the surpassing 
power. Note that word. The surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Therefore, we are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. We're always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. That means the the challenges that happen on the outside of us so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. The life, the surpassing power, this shining of God's life in us may be manifested in our bodies. Verse 11, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Paul says this is by design. By design, God wills this. So that the life of Jesus, note that, life of Jesus, life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. So Paul says the new creation, if I could summarize it based on 2 Corinthians 4, is the new creation of the life of Christ in the hearts of dead people. God looks at a world that is dead to God and alive to sin, and he says the only way I can commune with that kind of people is if those people are alive from the dead, and the only way that they can be alive from the dead is if I die their death and rise from the dead and then make them holy and sprinkle my life on them, sprinkle my blood on them, and then put my life in them so that they will live and breathe to my glory. The only way they can commune with me is if I enter into them. Henry Skogel said, true religion is the life of God in the soul of man. And that's what Paul's saying here. The life of God, the life of Christ in the soul of man. That's the new creation. And this new creation, when God does this in regeneration and in conversion and in the new birth, when God does this, by faith in him, through the Holy Spirit, we have new life. And this new life manifests new desires and new convictions as it should because it's life coming from Jesus with Jesus' desires and Jesus' convictions and Jesus' wants and Jesus' likes and his dislikes and everything that he's about, even if it's in small seed germinal form, it grows and grows and increases all of our days, these desires. And he describes these desires in chapter 5 like this. We groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. He describes it as it's rooted in the promise that God's given us his spirit, his spirit as a guarantee. He describes it in 5.6 as desires to be at home with the Lord, longings to be with God him he describes it in 5 9 as we make it our aim to please him this is new life new desires to please him he describes it in 5 11, knowing the fear of the lord we persuade others so there's this new conviction now none of us experience this perfectly but all of us if we're believers in jesus have this new life and these new desires that tend to well up inside of us in 5 12 he says we boast not in outward appearances, but we boast 
Notice that about what is in the heart. What happens in the heart in new creation is cause of great boasting in you and in I. And when we see the new life in other people, when we see his life, it causes boasting in us. Paul boasted of it and we should boast of it. And in verse 14, he also describes it as a controlling power over our lives. Actually, he says in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that once died for all and therefore all died. And that word control means hemmed in. It's, it's, it's pushed push me on this side and on this side. It drives me forward from behind. It, it motivates me. It pushes me forward. It controls me. It compels me. I, I can't resist this love of Christ even if I tried. Now, this love of Christ, he's talking about Christ's love for Paul, not Paul's love for Christ, as, as demonstrated right here in verse 14. It's Christ's love for Paul that compels him, and it controls him, and it moves him, and it changes him, and it puts him on mission. So a good question might be, how does it do that? How does the love of Christ compel us? How did it compel Paul? How does the love of Christ Control us, hem us in, move us forward. I think in, in two ways, really simple, simply, it's by the life of Christ, the spirit of Christ in us, convincing us of the measure of his love, of the measure and the depth and the greatness and the expanse that God has in love for us. The expanse of his affections, if I could put it that way, the, the largeness of his love for us, it, it's, a conv- it's a convincing work of the Holy Spirit in us, convincing us of the measure of his love. Now, when God wants to convince us of the measure of his love, what does he do? Does he create something around us and give it to us? Does he give us this gift? Does he make our lives a little bit better and say, see, that's why I love you. See, that's, you can know and rest assured that I love you because of that or because of that situation or because of that job or that child or that spouse, or whatever it is, or that job, or that career, or that bonus. How does God show the measure of his love? He says it right here in verse 14. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. We've been convinced, he says, of this truth, and no other truth. That one has died for all. Notice that one has died for all. God placed his eyes on the all and said, one will die for all. And he'll die effectually for all. It'll be an effective death. Therefore, all have truly died. He will die for all in such a way that he really will experience their death. And he'll die for them in such a way that he'll experience their death, and then he'll rise for them in such a way that verse 15 says that those who live, note that word, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him. Do you see the relational component? Jesus dies so that we could live, but not live separate from him, but live for him and be given to him. 
When God wants to display and to demonstrate his love, what does Paul say in Romans 5.8? God demonstrates his love for us in, in this. Christ died for us. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this. Has no one than this. Jesus telling his disciples, I can't demonstrate to you greater love. There's no gift that I can give you. There's nothing I can provide for you. There's no example. There's nothing else that I can show you that will convince you in your heart of the measure of my love than this. That I lay myself on a cross and I lay down my life for you. See, we need life. And the only way we can have life is if the only one who ever had it in him was life, and that life was the light of men, is if he lays it down and he gives it up on the cross. And he pours it out so that we could be covered in his life and be given new life. So the Spirit convinces us of the measure of this love. And the Spirit, I think, secondly, convinces us of the target of his love. Note the words in verse, in verse 15. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Look at verse 21. Paul says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul is unashamed of Jesus Christ's love for him. He is unashamed to say in Galatians 2.20 that Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection proves that he loved me. He loved me, Paul says. And gave himself for me. Paul steps directly into the target. When it says for their sake. He says me. Right there. I'm right there in verse 15. So much so that I can repeat it in verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin. For my sake he says. He steps directly into the target of God's love. And he says Jesus loves me. God loves me. That is not a childish thing to to, uh, to flippantly pass by, that is something to celebrate and dance around that God himself loves us. He loves us. His, he has affection for us. He cares about us. And we matter to him. Are you convinced today of God's personal and unashamed love for you? It's easy to say corporately, I believe God loves sinners and he died on the cross for sinners and I'm a sinner and I'm in that camp somewhere. But do you see his eyes gazing through the, the crowd of the people of his special love and then find you and say, yeah, and you're there and I love you and I put my personal unashamed love on you and you belong to me? If we had a workshop today, and, and the only assignment was to glorify this love. What would you do? How would you glorify this kind of love? I think the answer is that you'd receive it. 
what else could you do but receive it? And I don't think many things please the Lord more than when his people step directly into the target and say, you holy God, holy God, and me, hell-deserving sinner, you love me. And I know you love me because you demonstrated your love for me at the cross. He died for all, and therefore all died, that those who live, and he's made me alive, might live for him. For him. He died to purchase me so that I could have him. And that puts, that doesn't put us on center stage, does it? It puts him and his love on center stage. It's identity language. Paul says, my identity is wrapped up in the love of God. I'm loved by God, Paul says. I'm loved by God, and if you put your faith in Christ, you'll be loved by God forever and ever and forever. And you'll never stop being loved by God. He says in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, you're saints. And he's not saying, you know what, God pretends sometimes that you're a saint. No, he says, because of faith in Christ and what Jesus has done, you're a saint because you're loved by God. You're loved by him. He says in 1.8, you're guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because you're loved by God. You're a part of the body of Christ and individual members of it. And you're blameless and you're redeemed and you're forgiven and you're an adopted son and daughter because you're loved by God in Christ Jesus. This is why Paul is compelled and controlled by this love. That's why Sam Storms, when he comments about it, he says, this is the single reality that shapes and sustains and empowers his every breath, his every decision, and every sacrifice he ever made. Man, I want to step in that. I don't, I don't have that as my constant realization but when I read a sentence like that, I want to step into this compelling, hemming in, controlling effects of meditating on God's love in Christ towards me in such a way that everything I do is empowered by that truth. So we should be careful. We don't want to be the word police, but we should be careful that we not, as Christians and as brothers and sisters in Christ, overemphasize that the not yet in such a way that we would say that we're just sinners. Now, we are sinners. Make no mistake about it. Very bad things happen when you start to move away from the reality that you still struggle with sin. But we are not just, just sinners. We're saints. Guiltless. Temple of the living God, blameless, redeemed, forgiven sons and daughters, and new creations in Christ Jesus. The old has passed away. Behold, Paul puts the behold at the new has come. Don't put the behold at the wrong spot. Put the behold where the behold should go. Now this new life, this new creation life, he says also causes in us a... It's just a little difficult. Fear. Look at verse 11. And I, I, 
I think we need to address verse 11 because you could talk about the compelling, controlling nature of the love of Christ, but then you could see, wait a second, it says in verse 11, therefore knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. What's Paul motivated by here? Is he motivated by love or is he motivated by fear? I mean, after all, doesn't it say in verse 9 that Paul makes it his aim to please him? And he says in verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul says, I'm motivated by that fear of knowing the fear of the Lord. He's got, he's got that on his mind. So is it fear or is it love? Which one is it, Paul? How does the fear of the judgment seat of Christ relate to this controlling and compelling love of Christ? And I want to make a case that it is one in the same, if understood a certain way. Here's what we know it doesn't mean. When he says it's the f- that knowing the fear of the Lord, the fear that he has in mind when he s- focuses on the judgment seat of Christ, when he will, and all Christians, and that's the context here, he's speaking to Christians, will stand before Christ and give an account for our lives, for what we've done in the body, everything that we've done in the body, whether good or evil, how can he l- look at that and And not shrink back. It's not a fear that causes them to shrink back, but to move forward towards God because it's not a fear of condemnation. Not a fear of condemnation. And here's why it can't mean condemnation. Right here in our text, look at verse 19. God has reconciled the world to himself, those believers in the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. It can't mean condemnation because that would mean that God would count their trespasses against them. And Paul's saying clearly, the gospel is that God doesn't do that. God doesn't count our trespasses against us. He counts God's, Christ's righteousness towards us and puts our trespasses on Christ and counts our trespasses on him. So it can't mean that in Christ we're reconciled to God. If this would also go against Paul's writing throughout the New Testament. Romans 8.1, remember this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So it can't mean condemnation for there is none for those who are in Christ. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And he goes on in Romans 8 to say that nothing can ever separate us from the love of Christ. And he mentions even things to come. Do you remember that? nor things to come. And this certainly is something that is to come. And he is saying judgment will not separate you from the love of Christ. Christ as judge does not separate us from the love of Christ as Savior. Thirdly, if it was condemnation, it would go against our adoption in Jesus Christ. This ties us into last week's message. It would go against the truth of what John says in 1 John 4. And we have a slide here for it. There's something about it there in chapter 4 that John says love and judgment can coincide. He says, so we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Now, why does John say we can have confidence for the day of judgment? And by that, he means boldness and joy even. 
for the day of judgment. Because as he is, and that's Jesus, as Jesus is, so also are we in this world. Now, you could look at that and say, well, as Jesus is, so are we justified. As Jesus is, so are we righteous. As Jesus is, so are we holy, so are we blameless. But if you read the context of 1 John 4, as we saw last week, when he says, as he is, he is saying, as Jesus is so loved by the Father, so also are we in this world. With the same measure of love that the Father has for the Son, the Father has for everybody in the Son. That's staggering. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And that's what Paul says isn't happening in 2 Corinthians 5. This isn't punishment. This isn't a judgment for punishment, but it's something else altogether. Well, what is that? What's he mean by the fear of the Lord in this judgment? Well, he means a fear not of condemnation, but commendation. Commendation and praise from God. He's already said in 1 Corinthians 4, when the Lord comes, he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. And why does he do that? Then each one will receive his punishment, condemnation. No, he doesn't say that. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So what Paul wants What Paul is motivated by, the fear and the awe and the reverence that he has for his great God and King, is that he wants the loudest well done he can possibly get. He wants the loudest well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. There is a compelling love of Christ that sends him to fear that he wastes the opportunities and the life that he's been given and the commission that he's been given from Jesus and go off mission. He, he is afraid that he would lose his mission and, and, and go in some other direction than the mission of Jesus Christ that he's given to him. So there is the love of Christ that is for us despite our works, despite our works, despite a single work, that compels our fear to have works on that day. Does that make sense? There might be a new category. It was a new category for me. There's a love that comes from God despite our works that compels us to have fear that we have works to show on that day. And maybe you have experienced this in some small measure in your life. There is a holy fear to please someone, a reverence, an awe for someone to please them when they say over your life, and you believe them, I will never stop loving you no matter what you do. Anybody ever said that to you? Anybody ever spoken that over your life? That compel you forward? That 
causes a reverence and an awe and a fear to please a person that loves you with that, with that large of a heart. So that's, that's the fear I believe that Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, when Paul thinks about having works to show, certainly he's thinking about patience and suffering and joy in suffering and a number of different things that he has in mind when we're talking about being rewarded by Christ for faithfulness. But he says over and over again in the New Testament in his letters that what he wants to boast about before the Lord is people. He wants to boast about people. He says in 1 Corinthians 1, on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, you will boast of us and we will boast of you. He wants to be the boast and he wants to boast about other people as he has encouraged their faith and they've encouraged his. He says to the Thessalonian church, for what is our hope or our joy or our crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Paul says, is it not you? You. People, people from all walks of life, old people and young people and teens and singles and people who have it all together and people who don't have anything together. Is it not you? He says, for you are our glory and our joy. He wants as many people as possible to surround the throne and he wants to be a part of God rescuing people and putting them around the throne of grace to the resound and the name of the glory of the grace of Jesus Christ. And somebody might say, well, is that godly? Is that a godly motive to want rewards like that and to be rewarded for those kinds of things? It is if you understand that it's new creation life in you that ever makes that possible. It's only Jesus in us that gives us that kind of power to do those kinds of things. Paul says in Romans 15, 18, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. So he recognizes it as Christ's work in his life, and that's why it is a godly motive to seek rewards in that way. Okay, that's our new identity, and here's how we're going to close. I need to watch my time here. What is our new mission? If that's our identity, what's our new mission? Okay, he says it in verse 18 through 21. Let's read that, make a few comments, and we'll close. All of this, this new creation life, this new power, is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Note the very next phrase, the very next phrase. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Notice, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation because all he does in verse 19 is flesh that out. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Wow, that's great news. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So anybody who's been entrusted with the message of reconciliation are, in verse 20, he goes on, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. 
God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's the message of the ambassador. Paul says, I'm an ambassador. My co-workers are ambassadors. And Corinthians, you guys, every single one of you, are ambassadors. If you've been reconciled to Christ, you've been given the ministry of reconciliation, he says. Now, an ambassador, both in the New Testament times and today, is an official representative of one country sent to another country by a monarch or a king with a specific message. It's a noble calling. It's a royal calling. But the best illustration that I can come up with today for what Paul means by that idea of ambassador, because not many of us know ambassadors, and if we knew any of them, an ambassador to France or an ambassador to China or an ambassador to Turkey, they wouldn't quite live the way that Paul lived his life in constant dangers and toils and struggles. And they'd live in nice hotels and they'd have somewhat of an, an easy go at points. But a better illustration, a more modern contemporary illustration of an ambassador, in my understanding, is a missionary. A missionary. You might not know an ambassador, but you might know a missionary. I have a friend that's a missionary in Vietnam. And the reason why I would want to use the word missionary is because we understand when we think about missionaries as sent out representatives, the same as an ambassador. They're sent out by a local church cross-culturally to another context. They've got a commission. They've got a mission. They're sent out representatives And they live strategically in a foreign land. They seek to know the customs of the land. They seek to know the language of the land, the people, the likes, the dislikes. Who are these people that we're going to go live in and among and live strategically there in a foreign land representing the sender? That's what an ambassador does. And missionaries make disciples through faithfully delivering the message of reconciliation. That's what a missionary does. And they live ultra-intentional and and uh, persuasive, and everything that they do is on mission and has a purpose. That's what a missionary does, and that's what Paul says an ambassador does. Sent out strategically, foreign land, message. Which leads us asking this question. Who today is an ambassador? Or I'll use the phrase, who today is a missionary ambassador? Or a missionary? Who is that? Look again at verse 18. And note the words, us. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Look at... uh, Look further in verse 19. Not counting the trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Notice, who gets the message of reconciliation? Everybody that's reconciled. Who gets the message of reconciliation? Who's entrusted with that? Every single person who's been reconciled. Whether you're two days into that reconciliation or 20 years, you've been given and entrusted with the message of reconciliation. Who gets the ministry of Verse 18 of reconciliation, everybody who, in verse 18, has been reconciled to himself. Everybody. 
Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Paul tells the Corinthian church, you are all called into the ministry of reconciliation. You don't have my unique calling as an ambassador, but all of us have different and varying gifts and different and varying callings, but all under one big banner and calling of being an ambassador for Christ. All of us have varying gifts. All of us have varying abilities. All of us have varying opportunities, he tells the Corinthian church. But you're all ambassadors entrusted with a message, and you're called to live as a missionary ambassador with this message. The question in Paul's mind is not if people are ambassadors, but are they faithful ambassadors? And that's our question today. The question is not, are we called on mission? The question is, are we faithful to our calling on mission? Based on 2 Corinthians 5, I believe if you're a disciple... I believe scripture teaches if you're a disciple, you're a minister of reconciliation, whether that means on the job or in the home or at the computer or in the neighborhood or on the campus. Or if you have a specific calling as an ambassador to go cross cultural and go overseas and cross salt water. But not everybody who crosses salt water. Just, it's not just those people that are ambassadors or, or missionaries. It's people who cross the street over to the neighbor. Sometimes it's easier to cross salt water than to cross the street. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, If Jesus is precious to you as a new creation, if Jesus is precious to you, you will not be able to keep your good news to yourself. You'll all experience this later today when you watch football. You will be whispering it into your child's ear. You will be telling it to your husband. You will be earnestly imparting it to your friend. Without the charms of eloquence, you will be more than eloquent. He says, your heart will speak and your eyes will flash as you talk of his sweet love. Every Christian, he says, is either a missionary or an imposter. One point of application, based on the fact that you and I have been given a new identity, we've been given a new power, the surpassing power of the life of Christ in us, his resurrection life in us and in every single person who's ever believed in Jesus, whether that's a a two-day-old Christian or a 100-year-old Christian, based on that truth and based on the fact that he has said, as you go, Go into all the world and make disciples and do that as an ambassador and do that in my strength and do that knowing that I am with you. I am with you always. And my authority is over you always. And you're not going alone. Charles Spurgeon was once asked, how do you get so much done? And he said, you forget that there are two of us. Based on the fact that you're not solo on the mission, you, that would miss the point entirely. The, the, the Spirit is living in you. The Holy Spirit. Based on those truths, I want to encourage everybody this week, including myself, to take 
the single boldest step forward as an application of this truth, as an ambassador of Christ, that you can imagine taking. Sometimes it's helpful to take small steps forward, like on What About Bob baby steps. I'm not encouraging the What About Bob baby steps this week. I just want to challenge all of us to tackle this thing, to go past a fear and a barrier and gamble on the truth of his risen life. I want to encourage all of us to roll the dice this week and take the biggest, baddest, boldest step that you can imagine taking as an ambassador of Christ. And I don't know what that's going to look like for you. Maybe you're thinking about a couple of things. Maybe it's sharing the gospel with a stranger. You've never done it before. It frightens you to imagine ever doing that. Maybe that's something that you could do this week. Maybe it's writing a letter to grandma. Your hand would shake even as you imagine doing such a thing. Having a conversation with our family members about Christ is sometimes the hardest thing ever. Asking her about her relationship with Christ or a family member's relationship with Christ or knocking on your neighbor's door even though you haven't done it in four years. You don't know their names. You don't know their kids' names. You don't know what they struggle with. You don't know anything about their life. You ever been there? You just get caught in the rut of routine and you don't even know your neighbors. I'm not encouraging you in those situations to go knock on the door and pull out a track and go through a script. Just knock on the door and get to know their name and invite them over to your house based on his resurrection power in you. That greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Maybe it's getting reconciled with an unbeliever that you've hurt in the past and you've just moved on. God says, I don't want you to move on. You, you, your way forward is to go back. Your way forward into the ministry of reconciliation is to go back to that conversation that you just kind of left hanging in space somewhere. Maybe it's apologizing to a friend. Maybe it's for the first time not complaining at work with everybody else and so giving off a fragrance of life to people. Maybe you can't imagine doing that because you're a complainer. Maybe it's going into work This week, with a resolve to advance this company forward with all the gifts, energy, talents that I can possibly throw into it. Because I've been lazy and I haven't been an ambassador. I haven't been a good witness at work. Maybe I need to apologize to my boss that I haven't been a good and a strong and a hard worker. I haven't been putting forward my ideas and really going for it and seeking to advance the company as an employee and and blessing my employer. Maybe that's what it is. For you, or maybe it's inviting a coworker to lunch, or maybe it's actually going for the first time to the barbecue that you never want to go to. <laughs> because we're crying out loud, there's going to be alcohol there, and there's going to be cussing there, and I'm going to be put in weird situations, and there's going to be laughter about jokes I don't find funny. Go in the resurrection power. Risk a bad name for yourself the way Jesus did when he was called a friend of tax collectors and sinners and frowned upon by religious people. Maybe it's scheduling a play date with your next-door neighbors, even though the kids are a challenge and you fear what's going to happen when they interact with my kids. Do it. Maybe it's sharing your testimony with your parents for the first time, or maybe you're intimidated by your children and you need to share the gospel with your kids. 
and you're intimidated by that idea. Whatever it is for you, Christ is going to give you power and ability to do it. He's going to give you the words to say. It's going to be hard. He's going to encourage you, do not give up. It's going to be messy, but it's not about you. He is going to be at work in you. Now, I don't know what the Lord's bringing to mind here. But the one I want to encourage you to do is the one that you have to swallow hard when you imagine doing it. If you have to swallow and you get a little lump in your throat when you imagine doing that thing, that's what I want to encourage you to do this week. I got mine. I got a couple. I haven't, I don't know exactly which one the Lord wants me to do first, but I've got a couple of those. And uh, I'm going to, need to trust the Lord this week. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.